So in that case, um, I'll just say some introductory words of um, welcome. First of all, welcome to our speaker, Dr. Tia Noel Pratt, who is um, from the University of Villanova. Um, and I'll give her a slightly longer biographical introduction in a moment. Um, but first of all, welcome to her. And thank you so much for joining us across a great distance, uh, including a time distance, although it means you've got lots of energy because it's morning for you. Whereas, <laughs> you know, unless we're night owls, we're starting to flag now. Um, so we're looking forward to your energy and your, your input in a moment. Um, welcome to everybody. Um, uh, from the Centre for Catholic Studies and also welcome to those who are joining from the chaplaincy as well. It's great to have this as a shared um, joint event um, and I think it will be hugely interesting and stimulating event. So thank you um, to everybody. So uh, Dr. Tia Noel Pratt is going to talk to us on the theme of doing the work anti-racism and the Catholic Church. Um, I've known um, Tia in the context of the Journal for Catholic Social Thought and Practice, which is based at Villanova, um, and Tia has been doing fantastic um, editorial work um, for that journal, but she has a much longer and really very impressive bio, which I'm just going to share with you uh, briefly now. So Tia is the Assistant Vice President for Mission Engagement and Strategic Initiatives the Kurtzi Assistant Professor of Sociology and the editor of the Journal of Catholic Social Thought at Villanova University in Pennsylvania. A sociologist of religion by training, Dr. Pratt received her PhD in sociology from Fordham University uh, in the States in 2010. And for more than 20 years, um, Dr. Pratt has researched and written about systemic racism in the Catholic Church in the US and its impact on African-American Catholic identity. Dr. Pratt is also the curator of the Black Catholic Syllabus, and she's currently working on a book, Faithful and Devoted, Racism and Identity in the African-American Catholic Experience. Her academic work has been featured in the Interdisciplinary Journal of Research on Religion, and she has um, edited multiple volumes. Dr. Pratt's award-winning public scholarship has been featured in Faithfully, Commonweal, The Revealer, the National Catholic Reporter and America. And along with theologian Maureen O'Connell, Dr. Pratt has co-authored in the forthcoming volume, Catholic Higher Education and Catholic Social Thought, which will be released in February, so um, very soon. So Tia, we're absolutely delighted that you accepted our invitation to be with us today, and we would like to welcome you and give you the floor. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm very glad to, to be with you today uh, across this time and space and and internet waves and all of that and and uh, I've just returned from class so I I am a combination of you know kind of that that downward spiral you come from class and you come from class but also very energized because I have have a, a great group uh, this semester in in the course that I teach on this theme so uh, let me share my screen with you let's see if this works and can you see the screen is that, is that yeah working? that's good we can see yeah okay and uh let's do this okay yes all right um so as i think again thank you for for inviting me to be with you today i'm very happy to to be here with you and um uh, I call this uh, doing the work, anti-racism and, and the Catholic Church. And so I wanna start by sharing with you what the focus of our conversation today will be. Um, first, my approach to, to doing this work, 
um, to make clear that my focus is on the US. I mean, there, there's much more to talk about in, in these themes beyond the US, but my work is, is based in the US. Um, Anti-Blackness as a concept and how that incorporates into my work. Uh, what, what I mean when I say the work and, and why I put that in capital letters. Um, how I see myself as a scholar practitioner, uh, the Black Catholic syllabus, and what will happen next and how we can all do the work. So that's really kind of the, the points we'll, we'll be hitting on in our time together today. So in terms of my approach to doing the work, you know, first and foremost, I'm a sociologist. So I approach this work from the perspective of sociological training, of the sociological imagination, and, and what that means in, in terms of the research that, that I do. And another you know, significant part of, of my approach is discussing issues of race and racism in, in a real and authentic manner. And that's the only way I know how to do it. And that means that it ha we have to be okay being uncomfortable in these themes. <clears throat> we have to be ready to be uncomfortable. We have to be ready to make others uncomfortable. And none of this is easy. In fact, it's quite hard, but it's important that we allow ourselves to be in that space of discomfort and creating discomfort because it's the only way we can do it in a legitimate manner. And it's the only way that those who live with marginalization, whether it's the kind that I'm talking about or some other form, can create our own narrative. And creating our own narrative is essential in terms of, of doing the work and, and particularly doing the work of justice. So, so as, as my approach, as I you know, talk a little bit more today about my approach, you know, um, a lot of it comes from the, the notion of systemic racism and the reality of systemic racism and how it is embedded into our institutional systems. And sociologist Joe Fegan describes racism as foundational and systemic. And he talks in his work about how it pervades all of society's core institutions whether it's the economy, politics, education, religion, the family. I mean, here in, in the United States, we, we have our first Black vice president currently, who is also our first vice president of Asian descent. We, had, we just had our first Black president. I mean, after all of these years and all of these many presidents, we're still experiencing firsts in this regard, I mean, I know, I know in the UK, you are still experiencing first in these kinds of regards as well. And so that, that tells us just how much work needs to, needs to be done in, in this regard. So, uh, but Fegan also talks about how racism is oppressive and exploitative, that it's designed to exploit land and labor for the material and social benefit of those who create a society's core institutions and the hierarchies that lie therein. And that's one of the things that I spend a lot of time talking about uh, with students that I spend a lot of time writing about is, is the way that we have to think about these, 
these issues and particularly these issues of, of racism beyond the personal and we have to think about them in our systems and how they work in our systems. And that's why it's not enough to not be someone who engages in mano a mano or personal racism. You know, that's that's the racism of racial slurs and racist graffiti and uh, racist vandalism. But it, it's not enough to be to not be that person. We must also think about the ways our systems are designed to oppress some while benefiting others. So with all of that, you know, what, what does it mean when I say the work? You know, the, when I talk about doing the work, it is the work of confronting systemic racism and building structures that are anti-racist. So, so in order to do that, we have to knock down these systems that are systemically have racism embedded in them. And I put, I put this in capital letters for a very specific reason, because it's that important. It's important enough that we have to think about it in capital letters. And in thinking about it that way, we can, we can also think about the, the amount of work that has to be done and the magnitude of it. And in doing that, we can start to create a narrative that centers the marginalized. And so to do that, we have to talk about anti-Blackness, anti-Blackness as a specific form of racism. Uh, my, so my colleague, Whitney Pirtle and her co-authors have defined anti-Blackness as a form of racism informed by white supremacist ideology centered on the particular devaluation and exploitation of Black persons and is embedded in institutions, organizations, cultures, and so on. And so when we think about that, and we think about anti-Blackness as a, as a specific form of racism, then it allows us to really dive into some of these key social issues and, and social spaces where we see systemic racism uh, embedded. And so when we talk about anti-Blackness, we talk about anti-Blackness as rooted in, in slavery. And you know, the, the US of course is still grappling with all of this so many years after the end of slavery, but we, we all know the UK's hands are not clean on this issue either. So, so there's so much work for, for all of us to do uh, around this. But in the US in particular, we see this exemplified in numerous social structures, you know, our, our politics, you know, our, our military, the, the way that African-Americans were banned from the military for, for so long, um, our educational systems, our, uh, our Jim Crow system that didn't, that lasted for more than a hundred years after the end of slavery. And, and the church is not, does not have clean hands on this either in, in many different ways. Um, my, my former colleague, Dr. Shannon D. Williams, who, who is now at the University of, of Dayton in, in Ohio in the US, you know, in her work, she has called the Catholic Church the largest corporate slave owner in the Americas. So not just what's now the United States, but all of the Americas. And when you think about the pervasiveness of slavery in the Americas, you know, throughout South America, throughout Central America, throughout North America, 
then then we can start and and the the way that that the church became embedded over centuries in and throughout the Americas, it, it makes sense that you know this would be such a a large and major way that the church in, grew in the Americas and and. If we have time, I'll I'll talk about some some ways that in in future work I, I hope to to address this. Uh, one of the things that we're still grappling with in in the U.S. is the denial of access to the priesthood and religious life for African Americans, and this is about more than being able to to be ordained or or to uh, to take vows of, of religious life and, and commit yourself to the work of the church in that way. Because this is a this is a an issue of power. You know, this is an issue of where does power lie in the Catholic Church, not just in the US, but globally, and who has access to that power. Because uh, when we talk about who has access to power, then we can also talk about who doesn't have access to power and the steps that are often taken to keep folks from positions and means of power within our institutions. Uh, another way that we, we look at this is refusing admission to Catholic colleges and, and universities. Uh, in the upcoming chapter on that I co-wrote with my friend and colleague, Dr. Maureen O'Connell, on Catholic higher education and, and Catholic social thought that, that Anna Conley mentioned in her introduction. One of the things we, we talk about in that is, is an incident uh, not that long ago uh, in, the, in the early 1940s of, a, of young students who were African-American students who were Catholic, who wanted to attend a Catholic university in Philadelphia and were denied admission because they were black. And one of them incidentally wound up enrolling here at Villanova and became one of Villanova's first black graduates. But the, these two young men, one of them had a scholarship that was named for the Archbishop of Philadelphia at the time and the other was able to pay cash and was prepared to pay cash. I mean, we we are all we all spend much of our lives in in universities. Can you imagine turning someone away who has cash to pay? I mean, you really don't want somebody in your institution if you're going to turn them away when they have cash to pay tuition and fees. So that just that by itself tells us the extent to which the anti-blackness was, per, was pervading in, in our institutions. So another former colleague, uh, Dr. Katie Grimes, has, as, who is a, a theologian, has, has written about anti-blackness in the church and anti-blackness within uh, the, 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 the field of, of theology in, in her own work. So as we think about how we can move towards an anti-racist stance. We have to talk about where, where we are and where we've been. And so sociologically, when we talk about the, the idea of race relations, so we talk about that, that gets mentioned in the, in the discourse, particularly in the, in the public discourse quite a lot, this idea of race relations. But what we're talking about when we, when we talk about race relations is 
the idea of that that personal level of conversation around this. That's the that's when we talk about the the interpersonal racism. When we talk about individuals acting, committing bad acts against each other, and and too often, our conversations, our public discourse around this is is limited to that to that level. So when we move to the next level of racial justice, we're talking about institutions. We're talking about how this works in our institutions. But it's not until we can move to the next level of anti-racism that we talk about how can we extract this from our institutions. And really the only way to do that is to dismantle systems and create new ones that are anti-racist and are rooted in justice. And as I talk about in, in my work, the, the work of anti-racism has three phases that I like to talk about. The calling out the racism, the, the making people uncomfortable, the, the sitting with that and, and being comfortable making others uncomfortable as I, I talked about in the very beginning of our time together today. The second phase of white folks realizing they're not racist or not as progressive as they thought they were, or at the very least, the systems are racist and designed to work in their favor. And that's the level of really coming to grips with the fact that white supremacy is more than the Ku Klux Klan or the Proud Boys or, or other armed violent organizations. Because those organizations, their purpose is to use that violence and to threaten to terrorize so that folks who are experiencing that inequality, who are experiencing that, that oppression, become too frightened to work for and fight for justice. So it is that armed, violent, paramilitary wing of white supremacy that allows the rest of it to happen. Because by allowing the, by, by terrorizing folks, what you're doing is you're giving all of the other spaces free reign to continue what they're doing. So the third, the third phase of anti-racism being doing, doing the work, doing the work of dismantling these racist systems so that we can build systems that are in fact anti-racist. So I only do parts one and three. Um, Years ago, a, a student of mine, uh, a wonderful student, I, I told her that in my work of dismantling systemic racism, I said, you know, it's like Wonder Woman smashing the glass. And about 10 minutes later, she sent me this. And so I like to include it in, in my talks um, as a nice way to remember her. So, uh, you know, since, since, be, since early 2020, you know, we've all been dealing with a global pandemic that we're still dealing with. You know, in the US, we had the murder of George Floyd, which sparked a global reckoning, you know, truly that it was widespread around the world. And the church is not immune to that. And one of the things that came out of that is this urgency of listening to those who have been ignored. And so I highlight these themes in my own work to do the work. And just last week, I was 
contacted by a reporter who was doing a follow-up from the story that I had spoken with him for back in 2020. And, and one of the things that I was forced to confront and, and think about as, as he was asking me his questions was, you know, does the urgency that was felt in 2020, is it still with us? And I'm not sure that it is. And that is unfortunate, but I knew it was coming. You know, when 2020 hit, for me, it felt like all of the, that I had been screaming to, shouting at a wall for 20 years. And finally, I realized that the wall was really a secret door and that there were all these people behind the door who were listening to me. They just had decided to ignore me, but they were finally actually paying attention. And so there was this great sense of urgency around, around these themes and around this work. And I'm not sure that the, the widespread urgency is still there, but the work is still being done. The work still has to be done. And for those of us who, who, are, who do it, who are interested in it, you know, this is not the time to take our foot off the gas pedal. And so with that, I want to share with you about my some of my specific work in in this area you know in in my career i have always felt called to do more than scholarship for scholarship's sake that the scholarship that i do has to be applicable to the world that we live in otherwise what's the point it's one of the reasons why i got involved in public scholarship it's one of the reasons why i speak to church groups because if only folks who work at universities read what i have to say then it's not going to do what i got into it for so um so my research though is about systemic racism in the catholic church and how it impacts african-american catholic identity you know if I had to explain it in a sentence, that's that's what it is. Uh, but that manifests itself in a lot of ways. It manifests itself in this book I'm finishing up. It manifests itself in the writings, other writings that I've done. It manifests itself in the fact that I was I consulted with Pew Research Center in Washington D.C. on two studies that they published uh, one in 2021 and one in 2022, the one in 2022, Black Catholics in America, and the one in 20, the year before in 2021, Faith Among Black Americans. And these studies, I think they will be regarded as landmark studies on Black religion in the United States because for so long, there hadn't been this level of detail uh, approached and taken with with the approach to to studying uh, Black Americans and and their uh, religious attitudes and and level of, of participation. So uh, I've also been involved with the Racial Justice Task Force in my home archdiocese in in Philadelphia. Uh, I was a scholar in residence at a nonprofit in in Philadelphia, and I was the founding chair of the Inclusion and Diversity Committee at the high school that I uh, graduated from. Um, and, and that got into, in that work, we got into a number of different things that I'll, I'll get into in a minute that I think uh, very strongly are essential 
if, if we're going to do the work of, of building anti-racist systems and anti-racist institutions and doing the work of justice in that. But let's talk for a minute about Catholic Blackness and Blackness that is Catholic. Um, you know, here, oh, let's do it this way. Here, you know, we, there are banners depicting the six African-Americans who are on the road to sainthood. Of all the Black saints that the Catholic Church has, none of them are from the United States, but we have six who are on the road to sainthood, and, and hopefully at least one of them will become a saint soon. And of course, the, the great Nobel laureate, Toni Morrison, uh, was Catholic. That's actually where Toni comes from. When she, when Chloe uh, Wolford was baptized at the age of 13. She took St. Anthony of Padua as her patron, and after that was known as Tony. And of course, this is Cardinal Wilton Gregory, the only African-American cardinal that we've had uh, to date. And this, this lovely little guy is a statue of St. Martin de Porres that a colleague gave me in this you probably can't see it, but it is over my shoulder here in my office today. So, so at this time, I'd like to talk with you about, specifically about my scholarly research, particularly the, the research that I've done around uh, for, this, for this book that, that I'm finishing up. So it's, as Anna kindly mentioned in, in the introduction, it's uh, faithful, it's called Faithful and Devoted. Well, it's called that for now, but you know, we all know that editors have a tendency to change things. Um, so the, it's mixed qualitative methods, historical analysis, participant observation, in-depth interviews, but it pushes back against this lingering myth that being Black and Catholic are not compatible, and the myth that there are no Black Catholics. I mean, I've been doing this work a long time, and I still hear people telling me, oh, I didn't know that there were Black Catholics, or what few Black Catholics there are particularly the United States, only trace their origins to conversions that took place after World War II. And that's just not true. And, and one of the things that comes out of this that my work pushes back against is what I call the exoticism of Black Catholics. And that's when scholars, particularly white scholars, talk about Catholic Blackness and Blackness that is Catholic as something that is new and extraordinary and exotic when in reality it is, it has existed for many years and is beautiful because it is ordinary. You take that which is beautiful because it's ordinary and give it the, the air of the exotic or the extraordinary. And so an, an example from, from a, another author who, who talks about these two young women who move from Louisiana in the United States to the city of Chicago. And the first thing they do when they get off the train is to go to mass. And he spends this all this time talking about how wonderful it is and how surprising it is that they are comfortable attending mass in Latin. Now, mind you, this incident that he talks about happens in the 1930s before we had vernacular mass. So every Catholic everywhere should have been comfortable attending mass in, in Latin at, at that time. But he makes it exotic because they're black, but really they had been attending mass in Latin their whole lives. 
So what I do in this book is I connect the dots of systemic racism. Uh, earlier works, uh, much of it focuses on the place. You know, what's happening in New York? What's happening in Chicago? What's happening in Baltimore? So different places throughout the United States. What I'm doing in, in this book is showing it's showing how all of these things are happening at the same time. So as whereas other scholars are writing about place, I'm writing through time and showing that what's happening in Chicago, what's happening in New York, what's happening in Baltimore, what's happening in Louisiana, that these are things are all happening at the same time. And because of that, they're not isolated. And so the 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 dismissal that often happens that, oh, well, you know, these are just a few bad actors. Well, no, when we're talking about all of these things happening simultaneously, it's not about bad actors, it's systemic. And some of it is, are the same actors moving across these different places. So, so beyond connecting the dots of systemic racism, I, I talk about contemporary parish life and liturgy and talking about contemporary parish life, liturgy as a form of identity work, focusing on music, preaching, and church aesthetics. And how doing this is an act of resistance to racism in the church. Because for, for many Black Catholics who desire to incorporate cultural elements into liturgy, and whether it's through music, whether it's through aesthetics, uh, whether it's through the, the, a particular preaching style, to then be told, well, what you're doing isn't actually Catholic, when what, what that means is coded language for what you're doing isn't white. And so it is truly an act of resistance to say, yes, what, what we're doing is Catholic. And it is just as Catholic as when a predominantly Irish parish has a special mass celebrating St. Patrick's Day. Um, so, so this act of resistance is both quiet and active. It, it is something that folks in, in these churches where, where I've gone, where, where I've been welcomed, it is truly what keeps them in the church and being able to express that the cultural element along, alongside the, 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 the standards of a Roman Catholic mass, uh, it, it, it is what, what sustains them through so much racism, both in society and not being able to get any respite from it at church. So uh, briefly and kind of in, in brevity, this is what it looks like um, as, a, as a qualitative researcher, as a qualitative sociologist, there, there aren't many times where I can uh, exhibit my, my research in the form of a chart. My quantitative colleagues do it all the time. So I'm very proud of this chart, but really looking at ways that these predominantly black parishes uh, use aesthetics, whether it's uh, emphasizing African-American events like Kwanzaa and Black History Month or images of Jesus and Mary depicted as black and emphasis on black saints um, as, as you know, th this aesthetical piece, especially when black Catholic churches oftentimes, not always, which I'll talk more about in a minute, uh, 
oftentimes became predominantly Black parishes over time as the surrounding neighborhoods changed. So um, how homilies work, whether they're particularly short or long, and, and the music, and, and how the music then becomes this very active and, and very deeply meaningful part of, of the service. So, okay. So, uh, so I talk about uh, in, this, in this book of issues of race, space, and place. And so I talk about two key ways that Black parishes came into being. Uh, either the neighborhood changes or parishes were specifically created as such, like St. Peter Claver in, in Philadelphia, which I'll spend some, some time uh, talking about that uh, next. So uh, for anybody that is familiar with South Philadelphia, you might recognize this as the southwest corner of 12th and Lombard, otherwise known as the location of St. Peter Claver. So St. Peter Claver was the first uh, Black parish founded as such uh, in Philadelphia. And it the, the founders, the original parishioners of St. Peter Claver, they would, they were this transient church. And they would move from church to church. And, and as their numbers grew or as patients ran out, they, they would be forced to leave uh, because Black folks just weren't welcome until St. Peter Claver came along. So let's talk a little bit more about St. Peter Claver. So the story of St. Peter Claver officially begins in 1886 when Black Catholics in Philadelphia came together under the name of Peter Claver Union. And it was, as I said a minute ago, was the first Catholic church in, in Philadelphia designated for ministry to Black Catholics. And Black Catholics are dealing with things like segregated communion lines, pew fees, you know, you have to pay a fee just in, in order to sit down in church. You know, they're being banned from parishes. And church on Sunday morning didn't provide a respite for this. It didn't provide a respite from the racism that they were experiencing in their jobs, just walking down the street and trying to engage in, in public facility and public accommodation and facility. So 12th and Lombard in, in South Philadelphia was, was a prime location for this church. The neighborhood was in a period of transition and had become heavily African-American. Uh, the congregation of Fourth Presbyterian Church had moved out of that location and had followed its members to a different part of Philadelphia in 1891. Uh, here in the northeastern part of the United States, we are well known for these huge stone edifices as, as our Catholic churches. Um, as you might have noticed a minute ago, St. Peter Claver is not that, um, particularly because it wasn't built to be a Catholic church. For the 75th anniversary of the church, it gave credit to its founding to St. Catherine Drexel, the Holy Ghost Fathers, Archbishop Patrick Ryan, who was Archbishop of Philadelphia at the time, a benefactor who was chairman of a local bank, but only gives passing reference to the Black parishioners who, whose loyalty and sacrifice made St. Peter Claver possible. But what really happened was those founding parishioners of St. Peter Claver 
they were the ones who raised 90% of the money to buy Fourth Presbyterian Church. St. Catherine Drexel, the Holy Ghost Fathers, and Patrick Quinn only came in at, at the end to provide the remainder of the funds to secure the purchase. But even when the purchase was made, Archbishop Ryan would not consecrate the church so that it could be used as a Catholic church. It, it wasn't until St. Catherine Drexel secured the participation of the Holy Ghost Fathers that Archbishop Ryan relented and agreed to consecrate the church. But the price of that was that the founding parishioners couldn't have their name on the deed. So their sacrifice to raise the majority of the funds to purchase the church was essentially erased from the history of the parish. What they got instead was protective language saying that St. Peter Claver would always be used for the benefit of Black Catholics in Philadelphia. And that language will come into play uh, later in, in St. Peter Claver's history. But this is what happens when someone else writes our stories. When someone else writes our stories, then our, our contribution gets erased. So by the 1980s, the neighborhood is changing again and gentrification, even though we didn't call it that yet, was on the horizon. And the Archdiocese commissions a report that's known as the Sites and Boundaries Report. And this, this picture is, the foreground here is, is a playground that's one block away from, from the church. But what I really wanna draw your attention to is this parking garage here. Cause this parking garage was built in the eighties She's, she's looking her age right about now. But in the, when, she, when this structure was first built, it was really a marvel because this is a neighborhood that I, I'm sure you're used to, a neighborhood where parking is at a premium where it's so hard to find places to park. And so you have this mixed use building, which are very common in, in many cities in the US now, but they weren't common in the 80s. And so you have this parking garage, but on the ground level, you have retail space that runs the full city block. And so it, it's unclear and, and beyond the scope of my work to, to be able to, to determine if the, the creation of the parking garage drew people in because they now had a place to park their cars, or if people coming in, the response was building the parking garage. So the two are intimately connected. Which one was the cause and which one is the effect, as, as I said, is beyond the scope of my, my research. But this is really an a indicator of what was to come as the 80s progressed through the end of the 20th century and now more than 20 years into the 21st century. So as I said, the Sites and Boundaries was, com was commissioned by the Archdiocese, it's published in April of 1984. It, it recommends keeping St. Peter Claver open. Uh, it's at this point, it's declared financially viable, particularly because the school has been closed. It's within what's called an urban renewal neighborhood of Washington Square West, which is a, a section of, of South Philadelphia. It, the report indicates that it has real symbolic significance for Black Catholics who might feel abandoned if the church were to close. 
and that the protective language could cause unpleasant complications. Well, let's see what those unpleasant complications turned out to be. So the parish was suppressed in May 1985, despite the recommendations of the, of the report, the Archbishop at the time, Cardinal John Kroll, decided to suppress the parish. But that triggered a long court fight, and that ended in orphan's court. Well, I, I don't know why such, such matters have juris, our jurisdiction in orphan's court, but that's where it was. And in orphan's court in 2017, the protective language was interpreted to allow for the sale of the St. Peter Claver property. And an appeal was filed by, by the current parishioners who have organized themselves as the advocates and descendants of St. Peter Claver, really, really the descendant organization of the original Peter Claver Union. And, and in some cases, the literal descendants as well, because these are the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the original founders of the parish back in the late 19th century. But the story of St. Peter Claver isn't over. You know, they're, they're still appealing. They're now, uh, the measures in civil court have been exhausted, but the measures in, in canonical court have not. So they're still pursuing measures in canonical court. Uh, just recently, our current archbishop issued a, a decree that would allow once again, for the building to be sold and torn down um, and likely sold to a developer. Uh, so, you know, this, this isn't over. Um, so we'll see what happens. We'll see what, what canonical court does uh, regarding St. Peter Claver. But, you know, we have had to reckon in the United States, particularly in, in the Northeastern part, of the US where I am and, and the upper Midwest, you know, the, the area around the city of Chicago, we've had to reckon with the loss of churches, the loss of sacred space and on our sacred spaces and how that particularly impacts those who are already marginalized. Um, data from the Pew Research Center tells us that only 17% of black, of black Catholics worship in a predominantly black church, which tells us two things. It tells us about the scarcity of predominantly black churches, but it also tells us how widespread black Catholics are. Uh, even, even in Philadelphia now, you know, there are more black Catholics outside the predominantly black churches than there are in them. Partly because of the way folks have just moved around but also because we've lost so many of our predominantly black churches. So, so this action uh, impacts racial minorities, the poor, as I said, those who are already marginalized. And one of the things that I push for in, in my work is, is this understanding that an, an institution can't continue to marginalize people and then expect those people to be active in the institution. It just doesn't work that way. Um, you know, at, here at Villanova, we recently had uh, Father Brian Massengale come and, and give, give a talk for us. And the theme of his talk was Black Catholics in the U.S. leaving the church and, and why that is and, and what, if anything, can be done about it. So I, I started our time together today talking about and describing myself as, as a scholar practitioner. So I've just finished talking about the scholar part and I spoke a little earlier about the practitioner part, but the, the two really combine 
forces in, in the work I do here at Villanova. So I've been at Villanova almost two years now. And in a nutshell, my, my role in the Office for Mission and Ministry is to advance the university's anti-racism work through a distinctly Catholic lens and to show that the, the work of anti-racism is the work of the mission, that it is the work of the church. And, and the DEI work, the diversity, equity, and inclusion work, and the mission go hand in hand. Um, so, you know, and in doing that, you know, I, I'm constantly pushing back against those who, who say that it isn't the work of the church, it isn't the work of the spirit, and, and confront the false equivalency of Catholic and whiteness. Uh, and I, so I do that here in, in the work that I do here in my office. Um, my public scholarship, as, as was mentioned earlier, is, is a way for me to communicate all of that to, to a larger audience, to a broader audience, which I think is very important. I think it's very important that we as scholars recognize the value of that work and the value of talking to more people than just ourselves and each other. And there are ways that we need to do the work daily and doing that as, as academics, you know, that's, that's in how we think about curriculum. That's how we think about hiring. You know, one of the things I, I'm pushing for, for a number of different reasons, I mean, we're, we're growing, we've, we've had some, some reorganization efforts here in, in mission and ministry, but we've been doing a lot of hiring. And one of the things I'm constantly pushing for is not doing hiring the same way. If, if we're only hiring, you know, the, the, same, the same few white folks who live in the immediate area of the university, well, it's because we've been advertising jobs the same way for 50 years. So if we want to reach a new group of people, we've got to start advertising in a new way. We've got to build our connections. We've got to, to, to build our networks so that we reach the people we, we want to reach and not throw up our hands and say, oh, well, we tried. They're just not out there. Yes, they are, if we're committed to finding them. So curriculum, hiring, civic engagement, you know, the, the idea of paying folks what, what they're worth and, and stop telling folks, oh, this is the work of the church. And no, pay folks what they're worth if it matters that much. So doing the work must happen in all facets of church life as well. So think about our chancery offices, congregational leadership, congregational membership, you know, board leadership in our, our nonprofits. Board leadership is something that I, I do as much of as I possibly can because I think it's, it's very important. I think board leadership is essential if we want to change institutions and organizations, you know, um, our educational systems and parish life, you know, the, the way that we approach the problems and struggles of the church, like the sex abuse crisis. Uh, here in the United States, the sex abuse crisis has been almost exclusively uh, a white enterprise. We have not done the work of, ex of exploring the, the, the race and racism element of the sex abuse crisis. I mean, that, that reckoning is coming in large part in, in response to the reckoning that is going on right now in Canada. Uh, Canada is, is ahead of us in the US in this, in this regard. You know, when, when the major reports came, came out, uh, like 
probably summer of 2021 about that in Canada. The Secretary of the Interior here in the United States, Deb Holland, she she wrote and, and published a, an articles in the in the major newspapers in the United States saying basically don't think what what happened in Canada didn't happen in the US because it did and I'm committing the resources of the interior department to figuring out what happened and and doing right by these folks so um so the sex abuse crisis you know the the way that you know here here in Philadelphia you know we had a variety of orphanages that that mainly took in and black folks, and we know that that those orphanages allowed those children to have medical experiments um, done on them. Besides the church-run facilities for indigenous children, uh, both in Canada and the U.S., and and the struggle that comes from this reckoning is is long and hard. And like I said, uh, Secretary Holland, who is the the first um, indigenous person to lead the Interior Department uh, in the United States, and the the Bureau of Indian Affairs, I don't, I don't make up the name, I just report what it is. So the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which has jurisdiction over indigenous concerns in the US is under the jurisdiction of the Interior Department. So for the first time we have an indigenous person who is responsible for what, for the federal response uh, to indigenous people in, in the United States. And so, you know, the, the UK is not immune to, to any of this. And so I, I wanna, if we have time to, to hear from you about this and, and we have to push the church beyond the limits of white comfort. You know, the, the we want folks, we just can't find it any is, is not really an answer. So uh, in terms of, you know, more of the scholar practitioner work, you know, there is the, the black Catholic syllabus, which you can find on tiopratt.com. And it, it is a collection of resources uh, that centers the, the work of, of Black Catholics in creating our own narrative. And I launched this because I truly believe that the period of history we're living in, not through, but in, because if we're living through it, we're just trying to get to the other side. But if we're living in it, then we are embracing this period of history that we're all in right now. And it calls all of us to concrete action. And I knew that this was something that I that I could do. And it's for everyone, academics, journalists, educators, parishes, congregations of men and women, religious, the general public, everyone. So some key things that we're doing here at Villanova, we have a, a, a fellowship, a resident ministry fellowship um, called the Sister Cora Marie Billings Fellowship. And it's named for uh, an alum of Villanova, Cora Marie, who is the first Black woman in Philadelphia to enter religious life. And that was only in the mid-1950s. And so this fellowship is designated for a, a Black Catholic to get a master's degree in theology and ministry. And it trains folks to work in diocesan uh, offices, parishes, to become educators. So we also have the Mother Mary Lang Lecture in Black Catholic Studies, and that's where Father Massengale came to speak with us um, back in November. And so these, these two efforts that come out of the Office for Mission and Ministry are, are really about um, creating a, a larger profile around Black Catholics in, in the United States, which 
Villanova was not doing for a very long time, but it has committed to becoming an anti-racist organization, an anti-racist institution. And these two things are, are a large part of that. And part of it is, I'm, I hope you've noticed behind me the portrait, which is actually the, the print and the, the original is even more stunning than, than, the, than the print. And this is a portrait of St. Augustine, you know, really embracing and depicting him as an African man, because here at Villanova, we want to we want to shift that narrative and, and be leaders in that conversation of what it means for the Catholic Church to have one of its greatest thinkers and writers who is an African man, that we don't talk about that enough. And so this portrait was commissioned by the Office of the President here at Villanova and was completed by an artist uh, based in Texas named Vernon Adams. And, and we're very proud of it and we're very happy to have uh, an unlikely Aquilogy North African saint of Hippo as part of Villanova's permanent art collection. And so the, the original, which is, uh, you can't see it, but it's, it's here. It is here in my office. I'm still giving it a home. Shh, don't tell anybody. Uh, we'll go wherever the, the president of the university, you know, feels it should go, but the prince will go in a number of places around the uni university to really, uh, drive forward that conversation. So what happens now? So we must keep the fight for justice by doing the work and actively resist the racism that plagues our church. And that means like, like John Lewis, a uh, former congressman, now deceased former congressman of the United States, used to say we have to get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. And Sister Cora Marie, who I mentioned a minute ago, who taught me how to get in trouble, taught me how to, the language she uses is making people mad. Sometimes she'll call me and she said, I made people mad and I wasn't even trying today. Um, but I see this. I see this as modern day overturning of the money changers tables. That's where I take my lead from the gospels in, in doing this work. And, and centering our stories means that others don't create our narrative and don't uh, write our stories for us. So before we go into some questions, um, so one thing I like to do at the end is, is to pause and say, and pose the question, what do I know now that I didn't know before? And with that, I will stop sharing my screen and turn it back over to Anna. Uh, Tia, thank you so much. Um, you've given us kind of a three part, uh, I, I didn't know what you were going to do with this slot, um, in essence, other than share some of your work, but what you've actually done for us is three interconnected things. You've given us a kind of um, orientation to questions of systemic racism and thinking about those. You've shared your own um, scholarly practice with giving us a, an insight into a particular context in a particular moment and time, and the difference that it makes to do scholarship that looks at the question of time rather than place or time and place together, which I think is particularly interesting um, to think about. And then finally, you've given us some sharing of your own institutional practice. So that's a kind of um, a very rich way of threading together in one um, coherent presentation, three very different aspects that we can dip into um, and think about in different ways.